Today, as we continue this series, This Is Us, we find ourselves in the book of Ephesians. And we've looked through several different books. These four books in the New Testament that are called the prison letters, we've looked at Colossians and Philemon and Philippians. And and today we find ourselves in Ephesians. And, And really the message that Paul is trying to convey to these different churches It's really a message of faith. It's really a message of reminding them, hey, guys, listen, this was God's intention of the church. This is what God wants you to do as a body of believers. This is what God desires you as an individual follower of Christ to do. And it's a great reminder of just rereading some of this and and being reminded of God's initial intentions for the church. Now, as he wrote this book uh, to the Ephesians, this was one of the churches that Paul started. And the way he got there was a, a very interesting story. And we're not, it's a story we don't have time to get into today. But what I really do encourage you to do is, is to read about the story of how Paul got there, how this church in Ephesus got started. It's a great story that you can find in Acts 19. And it will tell you all of those amazing details. Paul was in Ephesus for just a little over two years. And throughout those two years, he had an extremely effective and powerful ministry that he was preaching the gospel message. Jesus crucified and resurrected. And it was changing lives like they've never seen happen before in this area. People daily were getting saved because of the message that Paul was preaching to them. Years later, when Paul was in prison in Rome, he writes this letter to the Ephesians. And the letter is, and this letter is what sometimes can be called a circular letter. This was, Ephesians was a circular letter. Letter, which means this. This letter was written first to the church of Ephesus. That was his audience. That's who he was writing it to. But afterwards, it would circulate around to all the other churches in the area. So they could actually hear what Paul had written as well. Now, after an opening thanksgiving in chapter 1, about what God has accomplished in Christ, Paul offers this prayer. And really, this is how Paul opens up pretty much most, the vast majority of his letters. It's with this prayer to whoever he's writing to. And I've mentioned before that, that, that oftentimes, in that first chapter of Paul's letter, he offers a prayer. And really what it is, it's a reflection of the deepest desires that he that he has for these people that he's writing to. And what he really truly desires to see happen in their life, in their church, and in their community. In some some respects, in our 21st century version, his opening prayer could almost be deemed like the cliff note version of what the rest of the letter is actually going to be about. It gives you an insight, uh, an inside scoop of, okay, this is kind of what the, where the letter's going. Here's kind of the theme. And if you want to know the theme of one of his letters, you look at his opening prayer because it will, you will find that. 
So in this letter, he starts out with this prayer. And the focus of his prayer is that the Ephesians would know God. That was his focus in his prayer. That the, his prayer for the Ephesians was that, was that they would know God. Now, he's not praying that they will know more about God, like head knowledge. Like, he's not, he's not asking them, or he's not praying that they're gaining more biblical knowledge or that they will memorize more scripture passages. That's not what he's talking about. That's not what he's praying for here. What he's praying for is that they, he, that they would know God, like really know God, that they would know him personally. And I've said this before, there's, there's this idea that you can know God in your head. You can know God intellectually, but it doesn't mean that you actually know him, like know who he is, know his character, because Paul's desire is that they would know him, know him personally in this intimate relationship. That was what his prayer, that's what his desire was all about. It's not this kind of knowing that's in your head, but it's the kind of knowing that is at the very center of your being. It's this kind of knowing that comes from a deep, personal relationship with someone. That's what he wants. That's what he wants for them, but that's what he wants for us too, right? If he was writing to us, that's exactly what he would want for us. He wants the Ephesians and he wants us to know God in a deep, center of your being kind of way. And there's three ways in which he wants us to know God. He wants us to know God's hope. He wants us to know God's inheritance. And he wants us to know God's power. And I want us to unpack these three things here today together. So first thing, first thing that Paul prays is that they will know the hope of God. So if you have your Bibles, if you... You know, hopefully you are already turned to Ephesians. If not, I encourage you to turn there. And we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 here today. This is what we read, starting in verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. We are hope-dependent beings. Did you know that? We are hope-dependent beings. You cannot live without hope. Think about it. In fact, how you live now will actually, will actually be profoundly impacted by what you believe about the hope of your future. That's what really what hope does, doesn't it? Hope for the future changes the way you live in the present. Did you catch that? Hope for the future, actually changes the way that you live in the present. The Greek word that is translated as hope in this passage is also found in 80 plus other places in the New Testament. Now the way that Paul and the other writers use that word hope is extremely different 
from the way that we tend to use that word of hope today. For us, that word hope usually reflects a certain sense of uncertainty. That's really what it is. It's like, well, I hope this happens. You know, there's, it's just this, it's a sense of uncertainty, right? That's really what it is. Every time the, the Leafs get into the playoffs, I hope that they'll get past the first round. You know, there's, there's a certain sense of uncertainty that when I'm saying, I'm hoping they'll make it past the first round. History is on my side. It tells me they're not going to get past the first round, but every single year I hope that the Leafs will get past the first round. That's how we use hope. It's with this certain sense of uncertainty. However, the biblical idea of hope is extremely different from that. Listen to what the author and the writer of Hebrews says. In Hebrews 11, he says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. According to the Bible, according to God's word, hope is this very real, life-shaping certainty about something that has not happened yet, but you know it will happen. That's the hope of the Bible. It's this life-shaping certainty about something that has not happened yet, but you know it will happen. Paul says it's this certainty about our future that the Holy Spirit gives us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. If you go back a couple of verses in Ephesians, you'll see what Paul says about the Spirit. He says this in verse 13. When you believed, as in when you gave your heart to Christ, when you believed Jesus as Lord and Savior, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Paul is saying that one of the things that God has given us now that gives us this certainty is the Holy Spirit. It's, we have this certainty about the future. Why is that? It's because God has given us his Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to give us that certainty. It's one of the things that God has given us now that gives us this life-shaping certainty about the future. It's his presence in our life right now. It's him sending his Spirit to us, to dwell and take residence in us. In fact, Paul is saying the Spirit is, is this kind of deposit, this kind of a down payment that God has given us now that guarantees that we will actually experience everything that God has promised us in the future. The Greek word translated as guarantee here is a word that was used at that time primarily dealing with commercial transactions, either the, the legal side of it, the selling side of dealing with commercial transactions. It's this idea that they're talking about this down payment or this deposit that gives you a greater sense of certainty of something that hasn't happened yet, but you know it will. In that time, that down payment, that deposit on a piece of land or a piece of property guaranteed 
gave them a certainty and gave them a guarantee, something that's not happening yet, but it's going to happen. That this, that this down deposit guaranteed that that property was going to be theirs. Paul says that's what the Spirit does in our lives. The fact that God of the universe is willing through His Spirit to take up residence in us now is what actually gives you hope about the future. The hope about the future is not just referring to the next few weeks or maybe the next few months or years or even decades. He's talking about the future, like our whole future here, our eternal future in Christ. That's what he's talking about here. So let me try to give you a visual. Hopefully, that might be somewhat helpful. Consider this platform that I'm on, that I'm standing on, as your whole life, your eternal life in Christ. And this jelly belly um, that I have here represents your life, your life here on this earth. So this whole stage, this whole platform represents your whole life, your eternal life in Christ. This jelly belly here represents your life right here on this earth. This jelly belly is important. It matters. But it's just a part. It's not your whole life. You know, so I put it down here, and it's just on the platform, and it's just a very small little part of your whole entire life. What Paul's talking about is that when you can become certain about your whole life, your whole life, it changes the way that you deal with things, the jelly belly things of life. It's, this is important stuff. There's important jelly belly stuff that's happening next week, maybe, or next month, or next year. It's not that this jelly belly doesn't matter. It's just, it's just your jelly belly. This is your life here, right there. But this is your whole life. And at times, we could get so consumed that we can't see our whole life, and we're not certain about our whole life. And because of that, we don't function in this little part of our life, the jelly belly issues of life. It's when we can become certain and see all of this that we will become a little less obsessed, a little less consumed, a little less fearful, a little less worried about the jelly belly stuff of life because we can see it in the bigger picture, we can see it in the light of our whole lives. And that's what Paul's talking about here. In fact, in essence, what he's saying is this. He's saying your greatness in the present will be determined by the degree to which you connect to the future that is yours in Christ Jesus. You are created for greatness. That your greatness in the present, right here, right now, will be determined by the degree to which you connect to the future, the whole life that is yours in Christ. That the reason you were created for greatness and the reason sometimes that we do not live out 
that greatness that we are created for is because we do not connect our present life, which is our life in Christ. And it gives us a sense of fearlessness in the present when we can understand and grasp it in the light of our whole entire life in Christ. So that's the hope. That's what Paul wants you to know about God. That's what he wants you to know and embrace and encounter as the hope of God. Next, he prays and he has this desire for the Ephesians and for us that we would know the inheritance of God. Listen to what he says in verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now when Paul talks about saints, or in this translation, it's, he's referring to them as holy people, he's not talking about super-Christians. That's not what he's talking about. It's simply meaning called out ones. When, he, when he's referring to saints or holy people in this passage, he's referring to the called out ones. That everyone, every single one of us who are a follower of Christ, we are a saint. Did you know that? Now, you may not feel like one, but you are one. You have been called for a unique purpose in God. The other word that is important to know here is inheritance. When we think about inheritance today in our world, we tend to think about money. We tend to think about how much money will I get out of all this, right? But in the ancient world, in Paul's world, an inheritance was generally more tactile than that. It typically consisted of all of the lands, the houses, the property, and the possessions. It was really this idea of this total worth and value of everything that they possessed. And that inheritance wasn't intended to be sold. Instead, it was intended to be passed down from generation to generation to generation. Now, when Paul says that he wants them to know the riches of his inheritance in the saints... Whose inheritance is Paul talking about here? Is he talking about his? Like, who is he talking about? Well, here, he's actually talking about God's inheritance. And what, according to Paul, is God's inheritance? What is that God values and treasures the most here? Well, according to Paul, it's the saints. It's you. It's me. It's, it's us. We are God's inheritance. Think about that for a second. Paul is saying that God looks at you and he says this, you are my inheritance. That you are what I value and treasure the most. And when Paul prays that we would know that, that we would experience that at the very center of our being, that we would experience the riches, he's praying that you would be absolutely overwhelmed by your value to God. 
that you be overwhelmed by how rich God feels when he looks at you. That's what he's talking about here. See, the reality is this. All of us crave affirmation, right? We all do. And there are many ways to feel affirmed. One way you could do it is to affirm yourself, right? We can do that. You can look in the mirror and you can say, dang, you're looking good today. That's one way you could do it, but it's probably one of the least effective ways to receive affirmation. Usually it's much better to get it from someone outside of yourself, right? Self-affirmation is important. I'm not saying that. It is. But when someone other than you affirms you, it's just, it's way better, isn't it? It feels better, doesn't it? Here's what's even more powerful. So when you overhear someone affirming you who doesn't know that you are listening or can hear what they're saying, right? Sometimes we can think people can affirm us to our face and they're like, okay, they're just being nice. But when they do it when you're not around, but you overhear it, it's like, oh, they really mean that, right? What Paul is saying is this, that none of that even compares to realizing and understanding that you are God's inheritance. How much he treasures you. How worthy you are to him. How much he values you. In fact, if you look at it, the blood of Christ is the ink that God used to write worthy on each of our lives. That he used the blood of Christ as the ink, so that he could write worthy on each of your lives. That in Christ you are worthy. So he wants us to know the hope of God. He wants us to know this inheritance of God. And lastly, Paul prays and he wants them and he wants us to know the power of God as well. He prays they would know the hope of God, the inheritance of God, and the power of God. We, Paul continues on writing to the Ephesians, and he says this, starting in verse 19, and he says, And his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. What we need to understand or, re, or be reminded of, Ephesus was, was this epi, epicenter of power in Paul's day. It was the epicenter of power. It had a lot of political power. It had a lot of cultural power. It was really a place of power. It had the power to influence people near and far away. It had, you know the power to influence events all around the region. And it was, also a, it was also powerfully, religiously, in essence, as well. Because in Ephesus, there was all these different kinds of cults and beliefs that flourished there. But when Paul writes to the church in the middle of this picture of power, that's not the power that he's focusing on here. For Paul, the greatest display of power that the world has ever known or seen is when God raised Jesus from the dead. 
Paul's prayer is that they would come to know and experience that at the very center of their being, that same resurrection power in their own lives. That they would encounter and experience that resurrection power of God in their life as well. Here's the thing, though. We oftentimes overlook when we talk about the resurrected Jesus. And that is the resurrected Jesus had a material body. It was a transformed body. It was a spiritual body. It was an imperishable body. But it was also a material body. The gospel accounts tell us that after his resurrection, that Jesus ate food and people were able to come near him and even touch him. That's the resurrected Christ. Now, what does that even mean for us here today? Well, when the resurrected Jesus returns, all who are in Christ are resurrected as well. That it won't be just some disembodied spirits floating around up in the clouds. It will be a life of eating and dancing and laughing. It will be the restoration of this world. It will be the life you always wanted but couldn't have in all of its fullness because of the brokenness of this world. That's exactly what Revelation 21 is talking about. It's talking about when the resurrected Christ returns that heaven and earth will become one, just like the bride and groom on their wedding day. That right now today there is this veil that separates heaven and earth. But when Christ returns, that veil will be removed and heaven and earth will become one. That they will experience that oneness. And when that happens, God will purify. He will renew. He will restore this material world, including all of those that are also in Christ. That's the resurrection power that Paul is talking about here. Now, knowing that power, experiencing that power at the very center of our being isn't just about waiting for Jesus to come back. Because if the resurrected Jesus is coming back to restore everything that has been broken and damaged by sin, then it's extremely clear that this material world matters to God. That's why when Jesus came the first time, he started this restoration project. That he will actually finish it when he returns. If this material world matters to Jesus, then those who follow Jesus, it should matter to us as well. We should join in on his redeeming, restoring work right here, right now. But doing that requires two things. It requires us to be constantly asking this question. What is broken in my little corner of the world? What is broken in my little corner of the world? The people that I connect to, the things I interface with on a daily basis. What is broken in my little corner of this world? That's where it all begins. Constantly asking that question. What is broken? What is missing? Who is hurting? Because until you ask that question, you just don't see the restoration work that God has called you to do. Secondly, it requires you to embrace the reality that God has given you the power to do something about it. Once you figure out what is broken, you need to embrace the reality that God has given you the power to actually do something about it. 
That's what this resurrection power is all about. That God is actually giving you the power to do something about it. That if you are a follower of Christ, Paul says you have power. You may not feel like you have power, or you may feel like your power is limited because you might buy something and you might think it's maybe because you're too young or you're too old or because of your gender or because of your past. And Paul is saying, if you are in Jesus, you have power. You have this resurrection power of Jesus at work in your life. See, whenever the church has failed to live up to its calling. It's not because we lacked power. It's always because we underestimated God's power. It's not because we lacked power, because we actually underestimated God's power. We forgot about the power that is ours in Christ Jesus. So join with God in the redeeming, restoring work that he's doing in your little corner of the world. And don't underestimate the power that you have in Christ Jesus. Don't forget the power that you have, that you have access to in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we we thank you for Paul's desire and his prayer of the Ephesians knowing you. And I pray that's my prayer, and, that's, and I hope that's our desire as followers of Christ, that we want to know you. Not know you just with our heads, not know you intellectually, not just know some facts about you, but really, really know you in a personal, intimate way. That we really know you, that it touches the ver- at the very center and core of our being. That we would know your hope the hope that we have, that we would know your inheritance, that we are your inheritance, that you look at us as worthy, you value and you treasure us, well, that we would know your power as well, that the same power that you use to resurrect your son, Jesus Christ, it dwells and lives within us and we have access to that power. I pray as we Look out what you want us to do as the church and even as individuals that we won't forget the power that we have. You've given us the power to accomplish and do something in our broken world. And I pray we stop underestimating it. We stop disbelieving in it, but we embrace the reality and the truth of the power that we have because of, because of the reality that we are in Christ. Show us to live that life this coming week, wherever we go, in our little corner of the world, so we can make a difference, not just for today, but for eternity. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.